Well, Phil Curtin, welcome to uh, welcome to the journey. And um, and just as I, you know, we've talked before, the the journey is uh, a show that basically tries to capture um, individuals who may have transformed uh, different aspects of their life, or or failed forward, or recreated themselves in um, either career wise relationship-wise, uh, or just in life-wise. And so uh, I know you had some, some pretty interesting experiences throughout your life and, um, and have been a huge resource for us at KP over the last year and a half since you've been with us. And so um, I wanted to have you on the show um, right now. But, but before we jump into all that, um, yeah. so Phil, what, do you, what does Phil Curtin do for fun when he has an opportunity for fun? What do you do for fun? Oh, um, you know, see people, I read, I, I write, um, I, you know, hang out with my wife a lot, especially lately. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, we have a, big, a lot of family around here. I love to spend time with them and, you know, it's been a little rough, but that's uh, been a main source of uh, our, our fun since we've been here. Um, we had um, just last week, we, we did a, organized a uh, birthday uh, celebration with uh, you know a bunch of cars and balloons and whatever going around uh, my sister-in-law's farm for 82nd birthday and then we sat you know very far away from each other for a while and we got to socialize so mostly it's you know hanging out and socializing is, is what I do for fun I exercise pretty much every day you know nice. but other than that that's it so so your preferred exercise what's your what's your what, what do you like to do as far as exercise or what's your go-to uh, um, three different things, some sort of aerobic exercise, whether it's uh, bike, walk. Um, I do um, resistant bands. I've been doing those for probably 10 years to, you know, kind of preserve my joints or whatever. And then I do yoga. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So how long have you been into yoga? Well, how long, it, how long have you been doing that? Uh, my daughter taught me, uh, uh, it was probably in the mid nineties. So it's oh, really? five okay. years now. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that so you were doing yoga before it became as popular as it is now. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> the benefit the benefit of our our, our kids uh, finding their own path. We can we can have uh, built-in teachers for us, right? That's right. You know, <laughs> she's she's been uh, a real resource for me. She does. Um, she's an anthropologist and she does research on fitness culture and in uh, different uh, places around the around the globe. And so she is very much into yoga and very much into fitness and whatever. Um, so that was surprised to me that she went that route, but that's a long story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that had been a very interesting time period. I, I was very fortunate that in the um, the early 80s I, in Rockford, um, it would have been surprised to know, but Rockford was a uh, a mecca for bodybuilding um, at that time, wow. state yeah. national bodybuilders, and I happened to grow up in that time period, and that's why I started competing at 15 years old because there was all these national uh, level bodybuilders. Two two individuals turned pro out of Rockford, all right at around the same time. Wow! And, and I just happened to be, uh, you know, had an interest in it and born into that community, and then they they embraced me and. For sure, had a lot to do with me winning a state and national title yeah, and, yeah. and those things, but um, because of who was here and during that time period, so that would have been an interesting time period for your daughter to have studied us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more levels than <laughs> one, or maybe we're glad she didn't study. However, that is, what <laughs> <laughs> she would have come up with. So, um, so yeah. So, so, Phil, you are are you originally from Illinois? Um, no, I lived in Illinois when I was in high school. Oh, okay. I'm originally from uh, back east. I lived in, um, I was born in New Jersey. Okay. And then lived in Pennsylvania for a while. Um, then I came out here when I was 15. Okay. Because um, my, my folks relocated out here. My dad was working in Chicago. Okay. So I lived here for a few years and then went back to school in, in uh, Massachusetts. Okay. So you did a, a majority of, like, when we first met, you, you had told me that you, you had spent time here in Illinois and then went yeah. back out, out east to the Boston area, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and worked a majority of your career out there. I did. Yeah. 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 Well, then, yeah. You know, it was, I, I went to Boston when I was 11 years old and uh, I fell in love with it then and decided, you know, as soon as I could find a way to get it back there, I would. And so right. I did. <laughs> 
so 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 t t tell us what what was it about Boston that you fell in love with at eleven and then resurrected when you were older when you and your wife went out there? Um, well, I don't know. When I was eleven, I was visiting there. Um, it was uh, you know I came up with my whole family. My dad was from New England. He went to school in Worcester, uh, where I wound up living for thirty years. Uh, I went to Holy Cross. Um, so when uh, there was just something about the city, the way it looked, the way it felt to me when we visited, that I never forgot it. I spent the next, um, you know, like six years listening to Boston radio stations. <laughs> there was one I could get. It's a 50,000-watt radio station. I listened to that every night before I went to bed. Sure. Um, who knows why these things happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it was time to go to college, um, you know, my dad asked me if I wanted to go to Holy Cross, and I said, Dad, it's in Worcester. What are you kidding me? So that's why I went to school in Boston, because I thought Boston was just the best place to be. Nice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, and then you, you guys, uh, af after you, you retired out in Boston, and you came back to Illinois. How long ago was that? In 17. Yeah, in 2017. Okay. Three years ago in a couple months. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Great. And then you, you've been with us now at KP since the beginning of 2019. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. January 2019. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, I know one of the things you, I, similar to myself uh, here in, in Illinois, I was a school social worker. And right. that was one of the things that you did um, when you were out in Boston, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, I did that for 37 years. Okay. So um, obviously a big bulk. And I know one of the things that you had right. told me about um, and early on when they started studying trauma was mm -hmm. that you, you spent, uh, obviously as a social worker, we're always, that's part of what we end up working with and, and dealing with, but then in the schools, it, it, it comes about too. So maybe tell us a little bit about over the years, how, how, is it, how has it changed a little bit? And then yeah. how did you first get introduced to it. Okay. Um, when I first, um, um, I worked in uh, elementary and uh, middle schools for five, my first five years there. And then I switched to the high school. And um, then I, I started to become aware of um, mostly girls. I was working in special ed and girls who were, uh, had been abused. And you would see a lot of um, really kind of um, um, behavioral issues, um, emotional, mental health problems, self-harm you know, that sort of thing, which was, was coming up then. And it really was surprising to me. I had, um, prior to my going to social work school, I worked uh, first in, uh, um, I should tell this embarrassing story about myself, but when I was in college, I, I did a volunteer thing at Boston State Hospital. I went there once and they took us to the back wards of Boston State and it freaked me out so much that I never went back. Mm. Until I got out of school, and the first job I got was at Boston State Hospital. <laughs> okay, okay. A little bit of counterphobia there, I guess. Sure, sure, yeah. You know, you sort of want to stare it in the eye and say, hey, okay. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it then, but now I'm going to work here. This yeah. is now my career. I'm going to do it. So I worked there for a while, and then I switched over to a psychiatric hospital, McLean Hospital. And we had a lot of... of um, girls on our unit who were cutters, so a lot of self-harm, whatever, and we had no idea what was going on with them. One of them was a great-granddaughter of Andrew Carnegie, and one of them was, was somebody who corresponded with this young girl who corresponded with Allen Ginsberg. Uh, she was a poet. They were really talented, really bright people. We couldn't figure out what was going on with them at all. It didn't occur to me until years later when I was working in the schools that they had most likely been sexually abused. Ah, uh, okay. So at the time, talk about being lucky, um, I lived in Boston, which um, was one of the centers for the study of trauma, and mostly in the person of Bessel van der Kolk, who not only studied trauma, but he, he did a, um, and has for 35 years now, done a, uh, a conference. I just got the notification of, of this year's conference in my email today, and they said uh, it's going to be all virtual this year, so I'll be able to go. That's uh, the first time in a few years since I moved away. So um, he wasn't doing it then, but one of my friends who um, was also having um, finding out about sexual trauma 
um, recommend that I go to, to see um, Vanderkolk and uh, another psychiatrist who worked in Boston named Judy Herman. Judy Herman wrote Father Daughter Incest. And it was, um, it, it was, it sort of set the, uh, the psychiatric world on its ear because I had had uh, something called the Psychiatric Dictionary, which said the incidence of um, incest in American families like was one in a thousand. Mm. Now know that like one in four women are sexually assaulted at some time in their lives. Right. So it was just widely underreported or was it denied? It was really hard to get a handle on like why it was so overlooked. Sure. And that was my initial, um, um, I guess, foray into, into the study of trauma. And it was about um, basically sexual trauma. And it, it, it returned to that several times in my career. But that was my initial um, exposure to any sort of you know, trauma, thinking about trauma as a separate category. Sure. Um, and you know, you, what you were just talking about, and obviously through a, through a ton of different things that have happened yeah. over the years, yeah. is that the secrets, the family secrets, oh, the secrets, God. and then yeah. the shame that comes along with that, yes. then perpetuate, well, there's not a problem here, right? Because <laughs> the downside right. about our research is is that it's only based upon, or, or, or polls that we do, it's only based upon who will will then come forward yes and and, and and break the silence um right. re regarding you know regarding the secret and then the shame is what perpetuates it right keeps it keeps everything inside let alone and i know you'll probably get into a little bit the story that we tell ourselves yeah along with the trauma itself but but go ahead continue yeah yeah um you know that 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 one of the most devastating parts of sexual trauma is the disbelief that there's nobody you can tell yep. and if you tell them they're not going to believe you they're going to call you a liar so there's there's denial at every level there's denial of the personal level people will deny that it's ever happened to them at first um you know i had one client uh, the worst abuse case that i ever had to deal with who was abused by probably five different members of her family three different generations she suffered dissociative identity disorder for a long time, and she was completely ostracized by her family. Sure. Um, nobody, and most of her friends, there were very few people left in her life after she went through this. So denial was at every level, and she didn't remember any of it that it stopped when she was about 12, and she didn't remember any of it until she was 33. Oh. She was, um, she had, Except for being 10 years younger, she had my exact history. She went to the same college, same graduate school. She was a school social worker. <laughs> so it was kind of an odd, uh, odd sure. thing. But, um, you know, denial was, was a huge part of it at every level, the societal, sure. the familial, and the personal. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of the worst aspects yeah. of, um, you know, the, the, the problem of sexual abuse. Right, right. So that um you know went back and and, and with the, the the uh advantage of hindsight i could go back and look at you know the the the, um, the girls who i was working with at uh, mclean they were no doubt victims of sexual abuse because they had all of the symptoms sure nobody could figure out what was going on with them. um that was a, a something else when i worked at the va hospital um, we were working with veterans, and the PTSD diagnosis um, had not been uh, put into the DSM as as yet. Um, <clears throat> I had, um, you know, I was like, I think I was 25, and I was working there, and I had to I'd do a clinical presentation as we usually do when we're in, doing internships, right? right. Um, and I had to present since I was at a VA hospital. I had to present to um, about eight medical students, about seven psychiatrists, um, God knows how many social workers who worked there, and the rest of the students, there were 15 students who were there. <laughs> I have to say I was completely terrified, as you might imagine, to, presenting to that crowd. And we had a consultant who was a great, he was a um, Department of Mental Health consultant, he was, he was a wonderful guy. So I picked as my, my um, my case, a guy who had 
Um, he had a lot of trauma. He had flashbacks and nightmares and he was very angry, whatever, but he had no diagnosis. He had the six uh, on staff psychiatrists who were in the room had given him six different diagnoses, which is why I picked it because I figured if they couldn't figure it out, <laughs> sure, sure, I don't know right, if they right. expect me to. Right, right, right. So, and the, the, um, the, the consultant, when he, when he, you know, after I presented, he sort of laughed and he said, yeah, well, this is it, you know, and he probably had um, a, a personality disorder based on all this, all the things that happened to him. Um, and this is how they present, you know, one day they look like this, and one day they look like that, but there was no real organizing concept to what was going on with these people. And that was really, you know, it was at that point, it was uh, 15 years down the road before that would ever happen. But, you know, some of the people who dealt with it every day could see that um, the resources we had, both uh, conceptual and uh, treatment-wise, were, were really deficient. They, they weren't really up to the task of, of <clears throat> helping these poor guys. Sure, sure. So um, that, um, that sort of uh, diagnostic chaos became much more um, prevalent <clears throat> when I discovered uh, developmental trauma. Developmental trauma um, is mostly about how people were raised. Um, the city I worked in, which is Lowell, Massachusetts, just happened to be the um, mecca for, it was, it's always been a city of immigrants ever since the mid-19th century. But in, for some reason, which is still a mystery, we had an influx of Cambodian um, both refugees and, and um, immigrants. So um, very soon, by probably the end of the 80s, 36% of the school system were uh, children of, of um, immigrants from Cambodia. Okay. Uh, one of my coworkers, who was a Cambodian social worker, gave me a study that um, shows a Harvard study that shows that like 50% of the people who uh, migrated from Cambodia to the United States suffered from clinical depression, because most of them were victims of the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields. And, and their kids were, were sort of being raised by absent parents. Okay. Um, and those were the, you know, the most, uh, probably the, they had the best excuse for not being very present as parents. Mostly they, they worked, and sometimes they'd be working at three jobs apiece, and their kids were just sort of abandoned. Um, and people had no idea what was going on with them either. Um, what was wrong? Um, it was just, you know, a real conceptual lack of coherence in terms of figuring out, like, what's going on with these people? What should we be doing? And that really persisted until the, the mid-90s. And believe it or not, what happened, and it was a real um, kind of a, a light went on, was the advent of neuroimaging. So with neuroimaging, people could get a real look at what was going on in the brains of people who had been traumatized. Okay. Um, that was huge. Um, the things that I most appreciated were studying uh, the development of attachment. Um, um, Alan Shore is the, the sort of the leading light of the neurology or the, the neurobiology of um, attachment and infants and he um you know i had I, I went to see him and spent two days and you know kind of my head exploded from all the stuff he was talking about for two days sure. but he um he talked about attachment as being this phenomena that happens when it is turned on or activated by proper care it's like oh okay so that's, so I, I two days, the day after I, I saw him, I sent an email, he was back in LA, I guess. And I said, would it be true to say, you know, it would seem to me that, that what happens if those attachment behaviors are not there, if you're not uh, exposed to um, people who are caring and devoted in their care to you, would, the, would it be true to say that narcissism is the default mode of that. He said, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. Sure. Oh, okay. 
so you, you, you see it. Um, I, I think it was like 10 years ago um, at the trauma conference, and Vander Kolk said, if I had this to do over, I wouldn't name the psychological trauma. I would name it attachment <laughs> because that's what trauma does. It interrupts, disrupts attachments. So, 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 yeah, just, go ahead. Just go. So, like, when you just for our some of our listeners, like, when we talk about so, when you're talking about attachment, right? Yeah, that connection or that bond, connection, or, yeah, or that sacred space that happens between the caregiver uh-huh. and in this case, the child, right? Yes, that that they can measure what happens in the infant's brain or the toddler's brain uh-huh. when that attachment has already occurred. Yeah, you can, you can see what's, what's happening in people's brain. It's what gets activated in the face of experience. That's basically what, what gets turned on in your brain when you're presented with um, um, certain experience. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Edtronic's uh, still face experiment. Mm, no. Um, okay. Um, it's, it's, um, I saw it once on Law and Order, they did it, you know, it's part of the dramatic thing on Law and Order uh, victims, special victims. Um, but you see a, a child, like a 14, 15 month old child, and they're sitting in a chair and they're, they're interacting with the mom and you see this, um, the bright kid and the mom's responding, whatever. All you have to do is have the mother take, you know, suddenly have a blank face. So she is no longer responsive to the child. And within 30 seconds, the child breaks down in tears. First tries to get the mother to be responsive, to just see the facial expressions that say connection, that presence, connection, sort of the warm embrace of someone's face, you know, with, in the absence of that, the child breaks down into, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. Sure. So, um, uh, one time when I was at the trauma conference, um, Ed, Edtronic, the guy who invented this 40 years ago now, was sitting a couple of rows in front of me, and we had to do this exercise, and everybody had to do it with a person next to him. And after it was over, Tronic said, I can't even do this. <laughs> I invented it, but I can't do it. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing to do to anybody. Sure, it's sure. It's like, well, it's a really poignant lesson. And it's like, what does attachment really look like? How, what, you know, how easy is it to do damage to people right. when you don't actively take care of them? And that's what developmental trauma taught, you know, so, was, was about for me. Yeah. So, so going, going back to what you were talking about with either the refugees, right, or the yeah. ones who, the Cambodian immigrants that came over who had, yeah. been, had experienced trauma when they were back in Cambodia. Yes. They come to the United States clearly just trying to survive, trying to, yes. you know, assimilate and, and acclimate right. here. And, and they may, not only from sheer exhaustion of working and just trying to survive, but because mm-hmm. of their own trauma, they having children, they may have had that uh, a thousand mile stare. Absolutely. Yeah. For, for a handful of different reasons, but yeah. one of them very much could have been the trauma that never got treated. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely true. So, Almost so the children don't get direct. So the children may not have been directly traumatized. Right. But because they weren't able to attach with the parent because the parent wasn't emotionally available. Yes. We see, you know, uh, the studies have been done that that show that um, of the different kinds of trauma, the ones that are most impactful are, you know, you would think um, awful sexual trauma, you know, that happens once, it's horrible, but it doesn't have as much impact as physical abuse over a period of time. But they found that the worst, the most impactful trauma of all was neglect. Mm. It's just that lack of connection with somebody. That's the one that has the most devastating effect on people over the long term because it's not a you know one time thing. It's yeah. it's always protracted. It's always a you know sort of a, a life pattern that you right. put up with, and it does terrible things to your brain. Um, yeah. And it's not that you can't overcome it, but it takes it takes work. I mean, it takes a lot of work, 
And it takes a lot of dedication by people who are trying, who want to help you. Right. And, you know, we talk a lot about connection and what we do with our clients is connect with them. Right. You know, and it, there really is, you know, as, as um, Shore said, it's kind of a right brain to right brain thing. Yeah. And a lot of it is not verbal. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's um, pre-verbal. Yeah. It's, it's kind of what makes uh, the present situation a little more difficult for us when we're, we're doing a lot of phone and video work because yeah. it doesn't feel exactly the same. Right. Um, and yet, you know, you can feel it. You feel it with people when you talk to them. Um, you know, it's a little different than in person. Um, so I was surprised not having a lot of experience with doing video stuff that a lot of the feel is, is there. Yeah. And, and, um, we're able to do still able to do good work. Yeah. Um, so what, one of the, so, okay. So one of the things that, so this is maybe, maybe I'm answering my own question with it, but so similar to what you talked about with the Cambodian immigrants and refugees, yeah. if we have a situation where let's say stereotypically a female who's been a victim of domestic violence yes. or domestic violence and substance abuse. Yeah. And, and, and the child may not necessarily be physically abused by, right. by the mom, but because right. of the mom's own, um, uh, domestic violence trauma or, mm -hmm. or now self-medicating with, with substance or, or, or just yep. one or the other, then that, emotional neglect even though the ba the child may not be physically neglected that yeah. emotional neglect may have this ripple effect on on, on the child mm -hmm. that would later even when we do get them in front of us and we're trying to help them it may take a while for them to trust us right oh yeah absolutely they begin to see see the world through um, a filter of their experience early experience it's um and you say, you know, people say, well, domestic, domestic abuse, a, a lot of the um, disorganized attachment, which I think like 8% of kids grow up with disorganized attachment. The what vast majority. What do, you, what do you mean by disorganized attachment? Well, there, there are different types of attachments. Uh, secure attachment is one of them. There are um, like three flavors of insecure attachment. One of them is anxious, ambivalent attachment. The other was avoidant attachment. And the last is disorganized. Disorganized is always the pro product of abuse, but sometimes, many times, the child themselves are not abused. They're witness to domestic violence. The witnesses to, to domestic violence can grow up with this this um, um, disorganized attachment, and it's like, well, who are the people who keep you alive? Who are the people you depend on? They are the people who you're closest to. They're also the scariest people you know. Yeah. Like, oh, so you go back and forth. You know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, what we consider, um, you know, borderline personality problems are really disorganized attachment. Sure, sure. And they have disorganized arousal in the brains. If you do, you know, neurofeedback with them, that's, that's what you see. They have disorganized arousal. So, so, so it's just not consistent. So, so that so the so in kind of different terms, the the child when they're getting those yeah. first impressions uh, of of of, a, of of safe space and connection, maybe yes. getting mixed messages. Oh and, yeah, they're definitely getting this mixed messages. Sometimes you're safe, sometimes you're not, and you don't have any control. Your hand is not on the lever. You don't you don't know why it's happening. Yeah, and, so. you, and and may get blamed for certain things that may not have anything to do with you right. uh, or, or whatever. Right. So it's all these mixed, mixed incongruent messages, but yeah. the consistency with the incongruency. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's regular incongruent messages. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Um, you know, the, the intricacies of, of development, which is, you know, something I, I spent some time uh, studying too, because it's so fascinating of how we, develop and for the most part we don't remember it because most of what happens before the age of three and a half four years old is not in our narrative memory because we don't have a good narrative memory so the initial part of our self-narrative is written for us and handed to us by the time we get to be four or five years old 
And that's the filter through which we look at the world initially until we change it. That's the way we see the world. So some of the things, you know, it's like, you know, procedural memory is, you know, like riding a bike, you know, it's procedural memory. If you tried to, if you gave me a 2,500 word essay on how you ride a bike, that wouldn't help me to ride a bike at all until I got on it and did it myself. Right. You know, doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, but we have a lot of procedural memories and the way we relate to people initially is also procedural. So we don't remember it, but we live it. It's in our bodies. That's where trauma lives. You know, there's a reason why Vanderkult's uh, uh, book on trauma is called The Body Keeps the Score. And that was a quote he got from one of his, uh, one of his patients. It was a traumatized woman who said, you know, uh, Dr. Vanderkult, the body keeps the score. It's like, ooh, okay. So he's made that the centerpiece of his work, and it's and it's hugely important. Because, you know, so, so speaking, uh, so speaking to that, and obviously, just to kind of, so for so for some listeners that just maybe kind of like trying to understand. So like most of the time, when people think of counseling, they think of us helping people reframe their story, right? And, yeah. And open up the possibility of creating a new story or the or mm -hmm. challenging old beliefs, right? So, um, or, or, or messages that were given by the perpetrator or whatever. But now right. you're talking about a second part of the therapy is, is not only yes. working on the narrative, but also then working on the, the emotional and the body response, including the brain, response to the trauma. Absolutely. Maybe speak a little bit yes. more to that because that's probably the part that most people don't fully grasp as much. Right. Yeah, I don't think, well, one of the reasons, you know, because it's, it's fairly new as a way of looking at dealing with trauma. You know, if you, if you look at um, what tools do we have to adapt? You know, the, the only tools we have are, can be broadly classified as our bodies, the somatic part, our emotions, um, and our self-narrative, the story that we tell ourselves about what's going on. Those are basically tools of adaptation. Mm -hmm. If you look at them like that, that gives you a really great advantage for uh, finding an entree. And if somebody comes in and they have trauma, well, you can go to whatever works with them. But you know, many, I'd say in comparison to like 10 years ago, I deal with a lot of physical stuff, start with, um, uh, you know, back in the day, it was all about talk and medication. Medication is a somatic response, but it's not very mm, specific. It's kind of broad, kind of like a sledgehammer, as opposed to, as, as somebody said, it's sort of like an ax instead of a laser surgery, you know? Sure. <laughs> it has a lot of, <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you look at somebody these days, you see, well, how does it affect their body? Um, one of the people I saw a long time ago was a woman named Pat Ogden who came up with what's called sensory motor psychotherapy. And her work with, with traumatized people was to have them tell their narrative, their trauma narrative. And then as soon as she sees their bodies begin to become dysregulated in any way, she stops them and says, hold it right there. And then they go to a physical thing where he gets their she will get them back into a physical regulation so that they're calm again. It's like, okay, now proceed. And if they get two words and they get dysregulated again, okay, let's go back to you know, calming down. So it's all about the somatic piece of this. And we weren't, you know, as, as you know, in school, we weren't trained to do this sort of stuff. Sure. Because nobody knew that we should be doing it backwards. Right. Now it's a lot clearer that you know we have to deal with people's levels of arousal, physical arousal, because that I mean, if you're dysregulated physically, guess what? <laughs> you're not going to be well. You're not going to be good. Um, and let alone, you're the, not going to be capable of learning. You're not. Yeah, I mean, remember the the um, the uh, adverse childhood uh, experience study, the ACE study from the nineties. You know what they were what they were talking about is like what happens to you when 
you um, have a lot of uh, bad experiences. And it's like, well, as you just said, you know, you're not going to be able to learn. You'll have cognitive problems. You could have behavioral problems. If you have like, you know, there's a list of like 10 adverse childhood experiences. If you have like six or more, you're likely to have one or more or a whole bunch of stacked problems, which could be the cognitive, behavioral problems, health problems. And by that, it includes diabetes, heart disease, chronic lung disorder, cancer, or all of those increased physical problems that can come from um, you know, adverse childhood experiences. It's like people don't connect these dots very easily. Mental health issues, anxiety, depression, you know. Well, I, you know, and I think one of the self-harm, all, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, and just again, for, for some of those listening, the idea that yeah. when we're not able to either uh, be even aware of that our normal is a dysregulated, our normal is a dysregulated normal. It right. might be the normal that we've learned, but it's still a dysregulated normal. Yes. So when people say, well, this is how I've always been, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't causing uh, uh, inflammation, uh, internal inflammation, internal right. uh, uh, incongruity inside, which comes right. out you know, in the immunity system, coming out in diabetes, heart disease, let alone lifestyle choices, right? Yes. So, yes. so I think there's this compounding effect that happens. What, one of, if there was just a couple things, right? Now, we know typically when they come to us, and people know this typically now because of whatever TV movies and, and counseling isn't as, yeah. uh, as, as uh, is more acceptable today than it used to be, right? Right. You know that we're going to help with, with changing that narrative. What, though, would you say from your experience if someone, if, if there was a couple things that we were, if, if like right now, right? Yeah. You know, in the middle of this pandemic, people are on a, on a different level, some people differently than others, are getting re-traumatized when they watch the news. Yes. When they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're feeling the sense of fight or flight mm -hmm. when they, they watch the news because this unknown, uh, this, this fear of the unknown virus, this invisible yeah. enemy, right? And then people talking about all this, this stuff, and then I, they watch it and they get super aroused because yeah. they're in this fight or flight. Right. What, what would be something that you, what what some what someone could do besides not turn it on, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Besides right. not expose themselves to it uh, <laughs> continuously through the day. What yeah. what else would you suggest just from their arousal standpoint? Okay, well, you know, everybody's getting over aroused. And, and what you were saying before, if you can measure people's stress hormone levels, you know, then you know, like, where they're at. Right. It doesn't matter what they're telling themselves. Oh, I'm okay. Your yeah. stress hormones are through the roof. Right. And, like, even watching somebody on video, I can usually tell when they're dysregulated or they're anxious or whatever. You can see it on people. If you're in the room with them, you can feel it. Yeah. You know? It's it's not a it's it's not really a question of you have to be that perceptive. It's right. like you kind of feel their energy. Right. So um, usually these days I'm I'm always starting with um, first of all um, if you're aware of um, the kind of breathing you do to stimulate your vagus nerve and it's just an automatic autonomic nervous system reaction. If you breathe in a certain way, you can stimulate your vagus nerve, which turns on your parasympathetic nervous system and allows your body to relax. So more often than not, I start there because if you're not relaxed, you're gonna be over aroused in some way, shape or form. People don't take relaxation very seriously. They think of it as like a pastime. Oh, I watch, when I watch TV, I relax. Well, if you saw that person watching TV and their, their foot's going up and down and they're all over the place, they're not relaxed. <laughs> right. They're distracted. There's a difference. So, so let me stop you there real quick. So, yeah. so when people, again, flippantly will talk about, oh, yeah, just take a couple deep breaths. The reason why we are suggesting for them to actually do that deep breathing, the deep yes. diaphragmic breathing, yes. is to activate the vagus nerve, which is our own internal way of uh, regulating our system yeah. to bring down right. the, the stress hormones down mm -hmm. and then stress response down 
to yes. what appropriately is in front of us. Because so many of us, right, we're, we're being activated by what's on TV or the right. news or whatever. And I had the same chemicals going through me as if a robber's coming through the house. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's nowhere, yeah. there's nowhere for me to go. There's nothing for me to right. find a flight. Right. And, and so, so I, I think, you know, it's something you can do with most people is take the somatic approach. Um, because you simulate your vagus nerve, it does something. It's not in your head. Yeah. You're not, in fact, you're getting out of your head. You're getting into the, the part of your body that is, is capable of regulating. Yeah. Our muscles, by and large, only have two tricks, as you probably well know. <laughs> you know, they tighten and they loosen. That's it. Our brains and our imaginations have more tricks than you can begin to imagine. Right. So if you try to calm yourself down by talking to yourself, that may work. But you can also freak yourself out in talking to yourself or watch something on TV and your imagination can run wild. And as it, it tends to do, I mean, I wouldn't want to give up my imagination, but it's not always my best friend. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, 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 um, exactly. And so, you know, you, you deal with the reality of that. So the reality of physical relaxation is that it's something you can control. You can get your hand on that lever. Yeah. So, and you can know that you can control it too. So that, that you, you begin to, I'll, I'll tell you the, the sequence as you learn the um, vagus nerve stimulation breathing. And that's a component that you put into um, progressive relaxation. You do progressive relaxation by you know, starting with, your, with the muscles, you squeeze them and you let them go and you pay attention to what does it feel like when your whole body relaxes. When this set of muscles relaxes, what does that feel like? Yeah. Now, you know, if, you, if I ask you, uh, you know, what color is your car? You just have a you know, picture in your head and you can say, well, it's red, it's blue, or, you know, it's green, whatever. Or if I say, you know, what was your favorite song when you were 20? You know, you just all play that song in your head. If I ask you to remember a feeling, you have, if you have fillings in your mouth and you had them when you were a kid, at some point you'll chew on a piece of aluminum foil and you'll have that really weird taste in your mouth and I can still feel it whenever I mention it. I haven't yeah. done it since I was probably 12, yeah. but I can still feel it. Yeah. And that's how I remember a feeling, is yeah. I feel it. So you teach yourself to do progressive relaxation. You insert that kind of breathing, and the breathing has a couple different, uh, it not only stimulates your vagus nerve, but it turns, it allows a part of your brain that, that uh, controls your anxiety to fire more slowly when you're exhaling, when you're inhaling. So the breathing is you inhale for a short count and you exhale for a long count. And that allows that your brain assisting your muscles to calm down. So, so, you, so just, just to paraphrase what you just said, sure. so maybe breathing in through your nose to a mm -hmm. count of three. Three. And then blowing out to a count of five or six. Or seven, eight, whatever you can do. Okay. The, the, the thing about uh, the vagus nerve stimulation breathing is if you breathe in with your abdomen and it's, it's really, you can feel two distinct phases. One, when you start to breathe in and then the last like 25%, you, the muscles right below your diaphragm start to push up a little bit. When you focus on those muscles and if you say to yourself, um, well, well, as I'm exhaling, I'm going to push down on my diaphragm. Now that, you can't really do that. But sometimes when I'm doing progressive relaxation, I'll ask people to wiggle their ears. And I go like, can you wiggle your ears? They go, no, well, why should I? It's like, so you can feel the muscles behind it in the back of your head. Because otherwise, you don't know that there's muscles back there that carry a lot of tension for a lot of people. Right, right, right. If you try to wiggle your ears, you can feel them all of a sudden. You go, oh, I got muscles back there. Like, yes, you do. And you need to relax those muscles. Sure. So when you tell somebody, look, when you breathe out, push down on your diaphragm. And as soon as you try to do that, what you'll actually do is put a little tension on the muscles in your upper abdomen. That's what stimulates your vagus nerve. That, that just minimal pressure on those muscles will stimulate your vagus nerve. That's what does it. Totally physical response. It has nothing to do with 
hey, this may be a good idea. Right. Anybody who does it has the same response. Sure, sure. You can also stimulate your vagus nerve by splashing freezing cold water in your face. That's not quite as portable as being able to breathe. You know? Right, 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 right. But I think it's like anything, though, um, except yeah. the splashing the water in your face. You could, you probably don't need to practice that, you know, to get that one right. But, but right. But I, I think the, I think like you said that the, um, the giving yourself permission to practice it. And yes. practicing it not just when you're aroused, but practicing no. it when when you're not aroused, so no. that so that it'll give you better preparation for when arousal does happen, and <clears throat> give yourself a time out to practice it when you are aroused. Right. The the example I always use if uh, you're in the seventh game of the World Series, it's not the time to bust out your new pitch. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, no, you start throwing the pitch in November to, uh, you know, in your backyard. And then by the time spring training comes, you know, you're, you're kind of there and you try it out and, you're, you know, practice exhibition games, whatever. And then maybe two years from now, if you're back in the World Series, that's when you throw that pitch. Right, right. It does take practice. You have to be able to do it without thinking about it. And the more you do it, and especially when you put it in the context, the same breathing, but you do it in the context of progressive relaxation so that you, you contract your muscles on the inhale, you relax them on the exhale. You've now put this in another practice. So this becomes automatic because you're thinking about doing your muscles. Once you know how, you know, after you go, go through all the muscle pairs one by one, you do a whole body one, maybe three or four times. So when you do a whole body tense and relaxed, you can feel every muscle in your body then relax. And then you go, it's like taking a picture then, you take a snapshot, it's like, this is what it's like for me to feel relaxed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, some people don't have any idea what it feels like. When you have that idea, you can get back there a lot faster. And if you keep practicing that, if you did it every day for a month and you took five minutes, you do it every day for a month. At the end of that month, you can tell yourself to relax by taking that deep breath in that certain way, and it would trigger that relaxation response. And your whole body would then be as relaxed as it's going to get in that situation. You would also know that you just did that, yeah. so that you have some control over your state of tension. Yeah. Knowing that you have some control over your state of tension is hugely important but feeling in control of yourself. You know, Phil, it, it, and I so appreciate you being on, especially at this time right now when everything's going yeah. on, because in the midst of people, politicians, situation is making choices for us, and we feel, you know, what do I have control over? Ultimately, yeah. we can, and we, went, we talked about trauma earlier, and now we're just talking about self, right? Yeah. In this fight or flight situation, in this threatened situation, I can practice right. controlling right. my breathing. Right. And and not only will it give me a sense of control, but I know with some of my listeners have heard me talk about this, is that this idea that when I'm in that space, that 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 sacred space that you talked about when attachment happened, that yeah. space is I'm gonna then see maybe a third possibility between the black and white thinking when I'm feeling yes. threatened. The excluded middle, yes. Yeah, yeah, and and so being able then going, okay, where's the opportunity in this in this chaos versus I just have to fight my way out of this or I'm going to be consumed by it. No, you know, again, I go back to the sports analogy. You know, what team plays better? The one that's in the playoffs for the first time and they're all tense, or the ones that just let themselves play? They've been there before. They relax. They just respond better. They, yeah. they see opportunities. They don't get in their own way. They're not telling themselves unproductive stories and whatever. So, yeah, that so, whole so, relaxation thing is hugely important. I have to say, all that stuff comes out of trauma study. You know, why we know this stuff and why we know it works all comes out of trauma studies over the past 20, 25 years. Sure. So that's one of the importance about trauma. It's taught us so much about how to just deal with people. What's the normal how should we be? All that attachment stuff I was mentioning. That's, you know, that's life at its best. Right. And well, and, and, I think, and I think that's a great example of how 
how we how in the midst of trying to figure out how to help individuals who've been traumatized, we yeah. figured out how to utilize these things, just how to live better. And yes. similar to right now, in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, all this uncertainty and not knowing, there are opportunities for innovation, creativity, uh, doing things different, groundedness. Um, yes. It doesn't have to be all doom, doom and gloom. No. So, no. so Phil, as, as we're getting ready to wrap up today, if there was one thing that you would want to leave with the listeners, what would you, what would you want to leave with them? Um, I guess it is, you know, what I'm thinking about because I have to do it too uh, in the in this uh, atmosphere. I mean, I get, you know, over aroused by all this stuff just like anybody else. And I know that it works. I know that calming yourself down puts you in the best position to take whatever is coming, to adapt to whatever, you know, that really it's always about adaptation. So we put ourselves in a good space to adapt to whatever we need to be able to do, regardless of what the um, the challenges are, and there will always be challenges. So it can become this can become for us a time when we learn something that we can use for the rest of our lives. And I try to emphasize that to people: this isn't something just just for the moment. You're going to use this forever, and it will put you an advantage to just be able to adapt to whatever you need to adapt. We never know what's coming. I think, you know, I think that's a great point, Phil, is instead of just trying to get through this, yes, no. that we could use this as an opportunity with everything that's going on right. to learn a new skill that will be not only a life skill, yes. but it could make either through directly, can make a, a huge difference as you talked about uh, individuals who are in those key parenting or grandparenting or life, yes. uh, caretaking positions. Or, or modeling it for other individuals um, when they're in crisis. That, that you know, it could be an opportunity to practice something in the midst of everything going on that could be a life skill later on. Well, you know, we talked about, um, Dr. Joe mentioned, you know, we can be a, a beacon of light and hope for other people. So, you know, other people in their lives can be that for their um, loved ones and the people who are close to them, even if sometimes they need someone else there to be their beacon. Yeah, you can still be that sometimes. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a marvelous thing. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you very much. Thank you for being not only in the, in the Rockford area and being at KP, and I've learned so much in the last almost year and a half with you being there, but just your, uh, your, your energy and presence and, and wisdom. I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything you do for our clients. I appreciate being able to work at KP, Kevin. It's, it's a wonderful place, um, and not, not, not a lie. Worked in a few places. This is the best. <laughs> well, thank you, Phil. All right. All right. You have a great night, and I will uh, see you soon at work, okay? Okay. All Take right. care. Thanks, Kevin.